0: Welcome back to another powerful episode of the Service First podcast, where we explore the power of putting a commitment to others first in business and in life. Join us as we sit down with industry leaders, entrepreneurs, and everyday people who are making a positive impact through their commitment to service. Get ready to be inspired, learn from the best, and discover how you too can put service first. Josh, thanks for being here, man. I really appreciate it. Um, Josh McCain is the founder of Big Sky Bravery, uh, a Bozeman-based nonprofit organization uh, that serves special op- operations soldiers, active duty special operations soldiers, which he can tell us all about. Um, but yeah, as we were just saying, you know, the Service First podcast is just kind of all about learning from those who uh, commit their lives to service in one way or the other. Um, that absolutely applies to you. And just thankful that you're willing to talk to us about it.
1: Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me on. I mean, it's really hard to be this close to Sidewinders and not be eating there. So <laughs> yeah. I don't know if this was like, you know, intentional or not to just get me, get my head in the wrong space, but I, I can see it right now and it's, it hurts.
0: We'll stretch this out past 1130. Yeah, okay, you can, you can head over afterwards and get some, like, get a Coors Light.
1: <laughs> I can't wait.
0: Yeah. Um, well, yeah, man, just to get started, I guess, um, if you don't mind, just kind of like, Introducing yourself and talking about kind of your personal background, you know where you grew up and all that
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll try not to take too long, but I moved out to Montana. I think when I was like four Uh, Three Forks, Montana, you know, everybody's like Butte, America. I call it three Forks, America, you know, three Forks versus the world in my opinion (laughs) Uh, So small town kid graduated high school in 2004. I think there's like 43 people in our class so um, kind of one of the ongoing jokes I always have. Is I graduated in the top 40 of my high school. <laughs> Sorry, of my class, yeah. not in high school. Um, yeah, uh, you know, I my life's kind of a weird one. Uh, my dad, uh, he was a marine. Uh, his dad was a marine. My mom's uh, father was in the army. Um, I have a brother-in-law who's served his entire career in special operations, but growing up at an early age, um, I loved living in Three Forks and I loved living in Montana. I think Montana is still great now. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different people that are moving here, but I still think people value, you know, where they live and they chose to live here for a reason. But back then it was just, you know, you didn't lock your front door. Uh, neighbors were always there to help. And it was just a really, really, really special place. I got to grow up, um, in an area that, uh. Um, I could only dream about, you know, I mean, I couldn't have picked a better spot. Three Forks to me is one of the best places in the world. So uh, graduated high school in 2004. Uh, didn't know what I wanted to do. I was, I had like, you know, shit grades in high school. I'm not going to lie. Um, never really cared about books. I just always enjoyed being with people. Um, fortunately, there's no grades in that, right? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, a lot of my friends, uh, they were going to play sports somewhere or they got into a college. And I'm like, well, hell, I'm. You know my friends are gone i don't know what i'm gonna do so uh, I, I want i thought about joining the service I, I had a lot of different things i was thinking about well i knew i wanted to go to college i was like you know what i i, I want to be the first person in our family that graduated you know from four-year university outside of my mom So, second person technically but uh, so i applied to this place called george southern university uh, i went down there for terrible reasons uh, they, they made a really um, awesome list at the time it's a top 10 list and uh, I was like, "Well, that sounds pretty fun." Top ten of what? Nah, Playboy's top ten party schools. <laughs> so I was go. like, "Yeah, why wouldn't you?" You know. Yeah. Uh, so they, <laughs> they they email me back, or actually I don't know if there's email at the time. They sent me like a letter, and they're like, "Hey, it's like the whole Forrest Gump thing, you know? It's like you need to be right here." And I was like, "Down to here." Yeah. Um. So they said if I went to this this school, this technical school, and I got a like three point five GPA, this tech school, um, that they would accept me. Well, I went to the tech school, I think I got a 4.0. I mean, the, the tech school I went to was easier than the high school that I went to, you know, <laughs> the high school obviously wasn't that easy, but, um, so I, I graduated from that, uh, or got done with my first year of that tech school and then went to Georgia Southern. That's kind of, to me where, um, my life really started because I had a lot of responsibility. I ended up joining uh, Russian for a fraternity, um, which I had heard so many terrible things about fraternities in the South, it's a lot different, hmm. had the best experience with that. Um, And just kind of the the friends that I made, you know, no one's going to go to class for you. The teachers um, in in the college, they could care less. You're just a number, right? So like some of these teachers, I swear to God, three forks, they probably just passed me because, you know, they like I made them laugh or something. But over there, like that was when I was like, man, I got a lot of responsibility. Well, it was kind of at that time in my life where um, there was a different parallel. And it was in a parallel that I had no idea about. I remember sitting in history class when I was in Three Forks and watching the invasion of Iraq. Um, I remember sitting in uh, math class in September 11th, 2001 and watching those, those towers fall down. And a couple things happened to me during that point. And I am kind to of going back a little bit, but I just remember the patriotism in our country when those towers fall. I mean, like you could see every single window um, that had a little plastic American flag on it. Everybody loved our country. You know, it was bipartisan. It's always been bipartisan, but it wasn't then. Like everybody rallied behind, you know, W. The September, our, 12th yeah, right? September
0: 12th mentality. Yeah, September
1: 12th mentality. You know, so fast forward back to where we were at. That really like instilled like a lot of patriotic, you know, um, you know, nerves in me. I was just like, man, this is this is our country. You know, it's just incredible what we're doing. Well, then the invasion of Iraq happens. I go to college. Well, when I got into college, um, my sister, uh, Allie, uh, she introduced me to her new boyfriend who was an army ranger, named Jeremy. And I had no idea what army rangers were. I, I remember hearing about him for the first time, like maybe the first and only time, uh, that movie, Black Hawk Down. I remember they were part of a support element there in, in Mogadishu and I just remember meeting him. I was like, man, this dude's a badass, like, you know? And that was when the parallel hit me, like, he's a little like maybe a couple years older than I am, but I'm over here like slamming natty lights in college, trying to make it to class and try not to fill out, doing what I'm doing down there. And this guy didn't even go to college and he went straight into war. And he graduated high school in 2001, went straight into war. He was one of the first ones in Iraq or first ones in, first one into Afghanistan. I think they took the airfield. And um, that really opened up my eyes to how selfish I thought I was being and how selfless that these, yeah. These warriors are, I mean, they they commit their entire life and, you know, f- not going to get into like more of what I do now, unless you want me to. But, uh, that was an eye opener for me. I'm like, man, I'm literally living this college dream and this guy is deploying for four and a half months every single year. And then the other time he's home, he's training up for the next deployment. They're constantly going over there, you know, into the most evil, harmful places in the world. They're not like, you know, it, they're, they're going to find people and kill right. them. Yeah.
0: So like you had, you had that patriotism instilled in you. You know at in your youth with you know through your upbringing um you know both both sides of your family having military backgrounds um but then in college you i mean having that awareness of you know like that September twelfth mentality, but then meeting Jeremy and being able to kind of put you know a face to it and saying, "Whoa, this is what that looks like, yeah, right, like this is the human element of um you know, this feeling that I've been having about patriotism and what our country stands for. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I I can definitely relate to that and I think a lot of people, you know, that's one of the questions I wanted to, wanted to get to eventually is like, um, you know, maybe have an awareness or a feeling of like what that means and and what that stands for. Um, but really being able to put, you know, connect the dots and have a human element associated with it. and for you, a family member, you know, through, through Allie and, and, Jeremy, um, and, you know, really being so close to that story. So, um, so you met, I didn't know that. So you met Jeremy when you were in college yeah, in Georgia yeah. Southern.
1: He was like, I don't, I mean, people listening to this podcast are looking at it right now. I don't know how many Rangers that you've met, but they're a very rare breed of, of men. You know, it's not like the traditional, everybody's like, oh, he's a, he's in special operations. He's got, you know, long hair long beard, you know, like this Hollywood, you know, version of an operator and sure there are guys that fit that bill. I mean, I see mm-hmm. them all the time, Yeah. but there's other guys that are just like, I mean, Rangers are like clean shaven, right? They can't have any facial hair, high and tight cuts. You know, they have the sleeve tats and they're, I mean, physical like beasts, yeah. but looking at him for who he was as a man and how he treated my sister, mm-hmm. um, you know, like what I was saying, my dad, you know, my dad, uh, he, he served in the Marine Corps, I think for four and a half years. So, when I was a kid, I wasn't a part of that then. That was before he met my mom. But like, I didn't grow up with anyone being at war in my family, right? you know, at all. Like I had no idea who was even deploying at that time. Mm-hmm. And then now it's here. And I just remember how um, the, the, and this was just for me, so I'm not trying to be selfish about it, but like every time that he would leave, I'm like, holy shit, you know, something could happen to him. And then seeing that with my sister, and then you get calloused over time. Like my sister was telling me a story really like just sunk in with me and she, I didn't remember her telling me this till years later um about ringing the doorbell like so he was deployed and it could be the UPS man it could be the FedEx guy and she didn't know if it was someone that was from the army coming to tell her their husband was killed yeah so every time someone would ring her doorbell her heart would sink and that was for four and a half months every single time and then yeah. he'd come home and then he'd train up or they'd be on call and then they'd go over and over I mean I just remember you know, watching these major milestones of Jeremy, like this point, not deployment, getting married, having their son, their son not him not being there for their his birthday, his, you know. And so that was like, to me, it's like, man, you know, there's a lot of service members. And I I, I applaud every single service member. I didn't serve, you know, obviously. Um, you know, my heart was really attached to special operations and like seeing how arduous this, this workload was on them. I mean, yep. these dudes are literally going over there all the time, nonstop. Jeremy did 18 deployments in 20 year career in special operations. He was, I think he was deployed almost six and a half years total time overseas. And none of them were like peacekeeping where he was like doing a security checkpoint. I mean, every single night they're going out and just eradicating evil, yeah. you know, I was just like, so you know, get into the, the future stuff and I'll, I'll let you ask another question, but that's, that was the mindset that really started to shift in my life. I'm like, dude, you're a worthless, you know, human being. I treated people nice, I always treat people nice, but like, what are you doing to look at that flag and say i should be proud of myself
0: yeah you know yeah it kind of puts it into perspective when for sure whether it's like that example of meeting somebody like jeremy who you know really kind of makes you aware of how, like maybe some some unmet potential like for yourself or just like when you meet somebody that serves as a, ro- a role model in Various different ways, you know, and it's like, it's good, it's healthy to have that awareness and say, okay, I like, here's living proof of how I can be better. Yeah. Um, I want to get into the, the BSB like origin story, but this question just kind of popped in my head with Jeremy. Like you said, he's only a couple years older than you. You know, you were in college at the time, typical college guy, and you're looking at Jeremy, you know, this guy who, like you said, didn't go to college, went straight to war. What do you think between Jeremy and all the other, you know, men and women that you've interacted with from those types of circles? Like, have you seen anything in common that drives them to serve in that way where they're like, you know, it is it's it's a totally selfless call. Right. And because there's so much stress, so much burden on your family, you know, people like your sister. I remember listening to your sister speak at the tribute dinner. What was it? last year or the year before um yeah two years ago ago, yeah yeah. it's all whirlwind isn't it and i mean like those stories are just so powerful you know like what do you think drives people and keeps them committed to that type of service that's a
1: really good question it's tough to answer that as not being able to serve i guess the perception that i've had i think there's two different ways to answer that like some of the people that we give back to they like they like we had no i had no other choice i was either gonna go to jail or i was gonna join the military yeah or they came from a broken home, you know, or whatever. And then it changed their life. They got in and they had no idea, right? Like I have talked to so many men, you know, cause we have like the male and the female programs. So I don't interact with the feelings. We keep it, you know, male and male, female and female. Yep. Um, I get to interact in a little bit, but like a lot of the males I've spent time in the last eight years um, for the guys that came from like the broken homes they are gonna go to jail. Dude, they were talking about doing like four years. They're just four year contract they're out. Yep. And then all of a sudden they're like hey there's these these, these special forces contracts or whatever and then they're like holy shit. i every one of them had the commonality like the theme behind it is that they don't quit right and they, they see opportunities they take advantage of it then you got the other service member right maybe the officer or the the guy who comes from um a very patriotic family wanted to do his part You know and they were always gonna serve you know like i've 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 interacted with guys sitting around the table and they're like oh man i remember seeing that movie with charlie sheen about navy seals like i knew i wanted to be you know something when i grow up um or you know i i used to watch last mohicans or whatever like i wanted to do that you know so they they had it in their entire life that they were going to do it so i think that's the two correlation i think what they both have in common is a every single one of them loves their country more than anybody you can imagine right they didn't know they were going to make a career out of it or they did know they were going to make a career out of it but selfless sacrifice humility and just a, a desire to to win and never quit you know i mean these guys that we give back to some have been in service for
0: 20 25 yeah. years that's what i mean man like there's got to be some underlying power cuz you don't you don't have a career like that you know a 20 year special operations career just by depending on like feeling motivated when you get out of bed every day Yeah, you know, like there's got to be some other underlying passion that just like makes you forget about all the reasons that you shouldn't be doing that yeah. you know makes you you know it over overcomes the the burden that you feel or the, or the stress you get from leaving your family like 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 jeremy did you know for so many years i mean there's It's admirable and something that I think, you know, there's a ton of power behind where you, you know, have, um, you know, some type of influence that pushes you along, whether that's patriotism or, you know, the American spirit or whatever it is, um, you know, I've gotten to see that a little bit, you know, through, um, our network and, and the people we get to spend time Mm -hmm. with but uh it is unique and i think that you point out a really good you know point that there's kind of those two sides of it like somebody that comes from a background with you know the expectation that that's the way their life is going to go and somebody i think the maybe like the more interesting side is the one like yeah i was going to go to jail Mm -hmm. or end up killed or go into the military and then yeah just do it for a few years (laughs) until (laughs) i figure something else out and then it's like well 20 years later my whole life has changed like that's a those are amazing stories, you know, and, and you see someone's life change by ha- bringing that influence into their life, you know?
1: So like the, the whole service mentality that like the whole, you know, origin of this, this podcast, right? So like, you know, and I'm not going to speak out of context because <clears throat> once again, I didn't serve and I'm not one of these units, but I've given my life to these, these operators for yeah. the last eight years, you know, nine years almost now, not eight years. Um, the work that they were doing, this is kind of from the old timers, right? Not not the younger guys, but the work that they were doing, it's just like, you know, being a framer, right? You go to that job site, pour the foundation, you build that frame up, and then you walk away from your job that day and you're like, dude, look, I just built that whole wall, right? Oh, the living room's done, you know, whatever. Like then the whole house gets built. Same as the service industry here. Like I bring my wife and kids to Sidewinders once a week. and. I don't think I've ever had a bad experience. The waiter or waitress that we always have is always like, are your kids all right? You all right. You know, they're they're, they're seeing that smile on my face, smile on my kid's face. We love our food. We love coming in there. You know, the American flags on the wall. So what you're doing matters, right? And you can see your hard work. You can see the fruition of it. Well, these guys that were going over there, I mean, I was paired with this one guy um, and uh, he had been in special operations like 22, 23 years and then got out. Well, he was part of this whole, I forget what they call like the baghdad swat era right and he was describing to me and you know not in a you know information was open yeah. source you know um they said they go out and do four or five hits a night they go hit somebody go roll up you know place whatever get intel go grab that guy and then somebody on the back in the phone like hey I, we just got into on this let's go hit that so at four or five targets a night and he said, "I did it for four months, and they were they, they were getting after dudes every single night at every single target." He said, "We'd usually it would be very rare that we'd roll up on a target and there wouldn't be like someone there ready to fight." And he was like, "Well, good luck, you know." Mm-hmm. And that 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 hard work and that mission set they had back then was so arduous, you know. And some of the stuff that I think these guys are doing now is like they're waiting for that, you know. Like they they got to this NFL caliber special yeah. operations unit, and they're kind of waiting for that and the the tempo. Um, you know it isn't as high as you know kind of what the old timers were telling me it was so i think that their hard work they they want to put that to use but they don't really necessarily have um, a lot of, uh, you know, many opportunities.
0: Yeah. It's like a carpenter having all the training and all the tools and then not having lumber to build a wall For or sure. something, right? So it's
1: going to be yeah. really interesting to see the dynamic of, of Big Sky Bravery and, and, you know, the special operations community to come. I mean, you turn on the news and, like, it seems like we're 30 minutes away from an hour, another World War Three, right? Yeah. You Whether know, it's China, Russia, Russia, Ukraine thing. Like, what's going to happen with that? You've got the cartel. You've got all these different things. And, like, we're seeing all this open source information of, like, holy shit. Like, are we about to, you know, go into the next world war, shut down the economy. They pull out the draft, whatever, but these operators, I mean, you know, I think last year open source again, I think they were deployed to 74% of the countries in this on the planet. So very small footprint of people being global, right? Right. It's kind of nuts, but I think that they want more to do. Yeah. And that's the mindset. Like, you know, you want more tables if you're a server, Yeah. you want more people to kill if you're
0: yeah you wanna like you said you want to be able to see that wall that you get that gets built for sure and that applies to yeah a server and a restaurant being able to kind of build the experience for people like you and your family um and and definitely to these men and women in the soft community that uh that you and Big Sky Bravery serve. So on that note I kind of want to like steer back into you know, the organization itself. And
1: I thought we were going to talk about my college days. So that's good. Let's <laughs> just skip those, right?
0: Yeah. Just, sk- we're just going <laughs> to pass right <laughs> yeah, over yeah, that. Okay, good. Um, no. Yeah. I want to, you know, I've heard this story a little bit from you, but uh, I think it's really interesting. and And I love that you already kind of introduced Jeremy, but talk a little bit about, you know, From that point, meeting Jeremy, his relationship with your sister, and then how does that turn into starting up a nonprofit here in Bozeman, uh, serving the soft community eight years ago?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I've told this one a couple times, so um, I'm going to try to come at it a little different approach. I actually had two brother-in-laws, my older sister's married to somebody in special operations as well. Mm. They ended up getting divorced in in 2012, um, so... He was a great guy. Uh, he's a good friend. Um, after they divorced, you know, we kind of lost contact and everything, but um, seeing it from both perspectives. So when those guys would come home from deployment, um, Jeremy would reorganize the shop every single time. Like he would always find projects due to keep himself busy. He had two weeks block leave after the two weeks is up. Jeremy's back in there. You know, he's, he's getting after it. Well, the other guy, he couldn't stop moving. He got really bored. He didn't want to be stagnant, right? He needed like an outlet of decompression. So he would always like go run for God knows how many miles, do his like physical animal um, or, get you on know, his mountain bike and always do it. And I'm like, man, I just remember seeing both of them, like two completely different, you know, circumstance or um, what I'm trying to say like outlets, right? Your garage, your house, go run as fast as I can or go mountain bike as fast as I can down on a trail that is really mountain biking. Well, I was like, man, these guys need an outlet for decompression. so. Mm-hmm. Um, during that time, it was like 2012. Um, I got married in April 2012, and I remember I looked at my wife and I was like, "Hey, I'm, you know, we're married now. What's your biggest dream that I can help you with?" And That's my job to make sure you live a life, you know, full of purpose and you can get your hit your goals, whatever. And she's like, "I always want to live in a big city." I'm like, "Oh, damn, man, <laughs> why did I ask that question?" You know. <laughs> so she was like, "Well, I was like, well, what what city do you want to live in?'" She's like, "Well, oh, I've been to Chicago once." She's like, what about there? I was like, Christy, if you want to live in a big city, why don't we just go to New York? It's the biggest city. You know, it's the heart, financial heartbeat of the world, right? Yeah. She's like, we can do that? And I'm like, we can do whatever you want. You know, figure it out. So we ended both up getting jobs. We moved there in October of 2012. We moved there two weeks before Hurricane Sandy hit. Oh, geez. So we lived on uh, 81st, between 1st and 2nd, the Upper East Side in Manhattan. And that was when I saw... It's just like a PG podcast, PG 13 no. R? Anyone listens to it? Yeah. Okay. Pass away. That's when I saw how fucked like society was. So everything below 59th Street in Manhattan was either underwater or it was off the power grid. Jeez. There was no power, there was no public transportation, all the hospitals, everything, dude. So it was like the zombie apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Like everybody would come up from 59th Street up to the west side or the east side or, you know, Harlem, wherever. And the stores ran out of food. Soon as that hurricane, they said, it'd come. "Stores ran out of food. You know, non-perishable items." I didn't have non-perishable items. I lived in a 400 square foot part- apartment with mice, you know. Yeah. And then Sandy hits, and it was a block party for two weeks. I'm not shitting you. Like everybody got drunk for two weeks straight. <laughs> I was like, "Man, Americans are very resilient, right?" <laughs> it's like you got these guys who are like eating like someone's bread, you know, and then they're drinking, you know, God knows how many beers a day. Yeah. Um, But
0: Americans will find a way to get beer. We will find (laughs) a way to get beer. Yeah,
1: (laughs) just depends on what kind it is, I guess. Um, And the during like so that you know, I started a career up there. Um, I got an amazing job. This guy named Philip, he really like jump started you know my belief system and myself. What were you doing? um, So it was in healthcare. So I, I was in charge of leading the the business development team. And uh, basically what I did is we had visiting uh, nurses, visiting doctors and home health aides in all five boroughs. So we were an insurance contract that, uh, or we worked with insurance contracts to make sure that people who um, had government, um, you know, sponsored healthcare options got the best service they could do. <laughs> so. I land that front. And then at the end of it, it was pretty cool. It was more like private equity based. Um, my boss was really interested in buying up, acquiring smaller home care agencies. So I got to see the financial picture of that and started to interact with people on, you know, you know, buying opportunities and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, but during that time, so the BSB origin, uh, Jeremy was coming back from his 14th deployment and I used to always go see Jeremy when he got back home. Uh, I remember seeing him. He always would want to go to the Outback Steakhouse, I think. It was either that or this thing is Outback. And like every time he'd come back, like that dude, like a piece of him was still overseas. Like he'd lose a little bit of himself, you know. Mm-hmm. And that I think was a pretty tough rotation for him. I think they um, might have taken on a casualty and a lot of them got injured. And like, I mean, 14 deployments, like, holy sure. shit, right? Um, so I remember flying back and uh, I just gotten a bonus, my first quarterly bonus for my, my, my job. And it was more money than I had ever gotten in my life, and um, I remember feeling like I was on top of the world, I'm like oh, we can go to you know dinner somewhere and go buy a Rolex or something like that. Like total idiot, I should have invested and probably bought you know Amazon at the time and yeah. I could have bought twenty Rolexes. But uh, came back to New York, and that was when I was like, dude, you are not living for the right reasons. You know, my marriage was in trouble at the time. I was more worried about money and you know my my career. I was always working, um, and then there's Jeremy. And I'm like, well, so I, I made some money. So I was like, I'm going to go donate to a charity. And like you pat your back, I pat your back, you pat mine, right? My you pat my back. That means my brother-in-law is going to come to your program and get some help. Um, Couldn't find anything. Couldn't find a single resource for active duty, special operations or active duty in general.
0: Yeah.
1: Everything was, uh, you know, I'm a veteran. I'm going to go on a duck hunter. I'm going to go fly fishing or, you know, these PTSD, a lot of amazing organizations out there, but it was, it was reactive, right? Mm-hmm. The guys were out seeing need DD 214 when you leave the military. Well, here's my DD 214. That's my ticket to get in.
0: Yep.
1: Like, what's going to happen to my brother-in-law? So started to ask like, well, what do they do? Like come back off a of deployment, you go see a unit psychiatrist. And you know, they just make sure you're fit for duty so they would all lie. From what I've gathered from the last eight years. And I was like, well, what are they doing for you after that? And he's like, well, uh, they're gonna take us to an NBA game in two months. <laughs> I was like, what, you can take the NBA game? So that was when my, my, going back to all the stuff I said earlier, you know, my dad raised me to be a Patriot. My dad served everything else. I'm like, what am I doing for the American flag? Yeah.
0: Really now for the second time, right? right. Because you said, like, originally, when you were still in college meeting Jeremy, it was a little Great. bit of a wake-up call. And now you're in you know, your professional career, post-college, married, and having another wake-up call. Like, holy shit, maybe there's more to this than what I'm currently doing.
1: For sure. And Americans at the time, we've gotten, we've gotten used to war. So, like, you get four guys that are killed overseas. Everybody's like, oh, four guys were killed overseas. Oh, my, Kardashians are on. Yeah. Right? So... Side note in that, I remember sitting on my office on uh, 34, 40, 34th Street, 8th Avenue in Midtown, like shit area of Midtown. I don't ever go there. Um, right near Madison Square Garden. And I remember looking out the window and I saw a service member in his dress blues. And he was just like looking all over. And I was like on the 8th floor. So I'm like looking down. this I'm kind of, like, this guy's kind of out of place. You know, he's standing by himself looking around, looking around, looking around, like lost. So I go down. I get on the elevator. I go down there right on the corner of 34th and 8th. And I'm like, hey, man, what's going on? And he's like, hey, not much, you know. I was like, you're all dressed up. And he's like, yeah, I don't remember what he was there for. And I was like, you need help with something, dude? He's like, yeah, I'm trying to find this place. And I'm like, oh, it's just right here, it's right over there, right across the street, that golden door. And he was like, dude, thanks. He goes, I've been standing for 30 minutes, obviously confused and lost, and no one's came up, no one's come up to me. I'm like, the guy's in his dress blues. I mean, at the very least, you'd be like just walk up to him. I don't thank people for the service. I just say, Hey, I'm really proud of you. Yeah. You know, th- you know, keep it up. So anyway. During that whole time Jeremy gets back, that was when the that light kind of came over my head. I like, right, can't find a charity to donate. So I, I used to go to the cigar club called David off Geneva, I think. Um, I think that's what it's called. And it's the only place in Midtown Manhattan where you go in, you couldn't talk. There's a, a big glass. So you can see people walking on Sixth Avenue. I brought my laptop in. I just typed up this business plan called Big Sky Bravery. Mm. And uh, it was like two hours, kind of came up for air. And I was like, holy shit, look what I, you know, that's pretty cool. Um, Ran it by Jeremy that night, and uh, <laughs> my wife, a week before that, um, she had a laptop. She spilled beer all over her laptop, so she was using mine. So I'm in the shower because she would always get mad when I come from that cigar club. I and mean, our, our apartment at the time, this time, was like 600 square feet. It wasn't 400 square feet, right? Yeah. So really high-cost. Upgrade. Point. Yeah, I'm a huge upgrade. And uh, she, she goes, hey, what is this big Sky Bravery thing? I was in the shower. I'm like, oh, God, because our marriage was in trouble all the time. I mean, I, I wasn't being the best husband in the world. Um, you know, I wasn't paying attention to her. I was just cared about money, my career, and everything else. And we didn't know where we wanted to go. Like, she wanted to move, you know, maybe back to Alabama and be with her family. And I wanted to get out of New York City and go somewhere. I just didn't want to jeopardize my career. And I was like, at Big Sky Bravery, uh, you know, she's a good stop. And I was like, shit. She's like, is this for Jeremy? I was like, yeah. And she was like, let's do it. She loved Jeremy too. I mean, he's an yeah. awesome guy. So when I moved, I ran it by Jeremy. I was just like, "Hey man, it, will this work? Is this something you guys need?" And he was like, "If you can pull this off, you're going to change the tide for Special Operations." Oh. So walked into my uh, my office uh, that like two days later, I think, and I told my CEO and I was like, "Hey, I, I quit." Wow. Took me three months to find my replacement, and uh, we packed up all of our stuff, and um, I came back to Montana. And she would only been once for my ten year reunion. And, We set up shop here in Bozeman in October 2015.
0: So did you look at that as like, were you motivated to get back to Montana personally? I know you said that like you wanted to get out of New York city. Was that partially like not saying that it was like, you know, a selfish endeavor whatsoever, but like, was it also a way for you to get your family back out here too?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, that was always, you know, an idea, but I needed something, to justify it. I needed something that was worth my time to quit this job. Um, I needed the right reason. I had no idea that's what it was until Jeremy told me that, Mm -hmm. you know, I, Montana was always like, Hey, I'd love to live there one day, but then having a substantial reason behind it, that was actually going to impact other people's lives, you know, was, you know, I applaud my wife because she didn't want to, and she would agree to it after that.
0: I think that's, that's something that I've been talking to some friends of mine about here in the company recently. And like, know it's it's easy to like come up with reasons not to do something when you feel like it's self-serving right when you're like like whether it's you know something as simple as like weight loss like if if someone feels like well it just it doesn't really impact anybody else but me like i i can you know keep doing something but but when you feel like it's something that you're gonna serve somebody else, right? It's going to impact somebody else. There's like a whole different level of impact behind that, you know. And and I feel like that can be really motivating for people. Like even for for like you said, when Chrissy was like, Hey, is this for Jeremy? Yeah. You know, if it was something self-serving and just being like, Hey, I really want to move us back to Montana, there probably would have been a hundred excuses not to do it. For sure. Right. Um, Nothing against Christy whatsoever, but like when you feel like you have when you're doing something for somebody else, it's so much easier, I guess, to to pull the trigger and say, yeah, let's do it, you know, and because you're motivated by knowing that you're making that impact on others. I think that's a really interesting concept in that, you know. Maybe there is ways. There are ways that we should be trying to implement that when we, you know, look at just taking care of ourselves too, um, finding that motivation. But uh, but certainly with, with efforts that are focused on on serving others. So when that was what, like, oh, six or something. Or when, when did you guys no, uh, 2015. 2015.
1: Yeah, three years before I think I came to Sidewinders for the first time. Yeah. Was it 2018 you guys opened?
0: 17. 17, yeah, yeah. two years. Yeah. Two,
1: two years of my life that was missing.
0: So you guys set up shop in Bozeman and then, yeah, what are those first, like- <laughs>
1: It's awful.
0: Few years of, of building. That was an, another question I wanted to talk about is like, you know, you're a founder of an organization, right? And- um one concept that i've been trying to you know learn more about is that founder mentality bringing something from an idea you know a business plan that you wrote in the cigar lounge to reality you know what did that process look like for you
1: well leasing your soul to the devil it's the worst thing i've ever gone through in my life um came back i had two relationships here in the valley of people that had substantial money And I remember asking one of them, like, you know, I know he's got the money. I know their family's got the money. And he was like, I'm never going to support this. I'm like, well, there goes one, the other one never get back to me. So I came back thinking that I had the world and under a firm understanding of the business world. And I was like, oh, you can make it in New York. You can make it anywhere. New York people just got to ask the question, you know, ask for the business, you know, just don't beat around the bush, just be upfront and get it. You know? So I thought that well, it didn't really work here. Um, we self-funded everything. You know, I almost went bankrupt twice getting it off the ground, almost lost my marriage. I mean, when I thought I was giving myself to my job in New York, it was nothing compared to trying to get a nonprofit off the ground. Bozeman's an awesome place. I think there's like 700 plus charities with an operating budget. And then there's over a thousand registered 501 C threes in the Valley of, I don't know, 60, some thousand people or something like that. And I don't know. Uh, got a lot of kickback. Um, but I knew it was worth it. I knew it was worth my brother-in-law, you know, um, get here in October. Our first task force was in March of 2016. I think there's two major milestones. You got to have a best friend. You got to have a cheerleader, right? Um, my best friend and cheerleader is a guy named Sean Hertz. Uh, Sean joined our board. Uh, he's a financial advisor here in town. Uh, he, He was the, I've had two major blessings in Big Sky Bravery. He was number one in sequential order. Just somebody to like care about it as much as me, um, give their time and mind, body, and soul to it as much as me. Uh, He helped me keep, he helped me stay grounded. He's about 20 years older than I am. Um, We ran the first task force in March of 2016. It was me, Sean Hertz, and my wife, Christy. Uh, never been more nervous picking up something from the airport. Like so these three guys in special operations came out and these, this is like, you know, goes back, they were all sleep tatted, just physical specimens. Right. Um, conversation was super quiet. We had no idea what a task force looked like, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, we just wanted to, you know, wear them down with recreation and then hopefully they would, you know, want to engage in conversation with us and wherever the conversation went, that's where it was. That week there was a learning opportunity in the best way. I remember on like night three, everybody was crying. And I'm like, seeing these guys get off the airplane, I'm like, dude, these guys could kill us in one second. And like, they had no emotion, just, you know, blank face. But then getting to know them as men, getting to know them as men and watching them smile and be vulnerable about it. You know, I was like, good Lord. So I remember when they left, we dropped them off the airport. Sean and I and Christy just, we went to uh, old Chicago at the time. And we just sat there. I think we all three sat around the table. We didn't know what to say, but we knew what we did was worth it. Yeah. And uh, they started to send in their testimonials after that, and then we knew we were on to something. We couldn't quit.
0: Yeah, that's got to be kind of surreal because there was nothing else out there like it. I mean, there still isn't. But like you said earlier, I mean, there there really were were no outlets for people like Jeremy and people like the the guys that came out for your first task force, right? So you're like not only like starting something uh, like as a founder, but it's like a novel concept too, right? It's not like just opening another restaurant where yeah, you kind of follow the same, you know, steps of service and they all kind of function the same. You're coming up with something totally new.
1: Yeah, it was totally new. I mean, you know, I, I've been realistic for this over the last eight years. Um, you know, I don't really do podcasts, um, but when you asked me to do it, I was like, hell yeah, you're a good friend of mine. You've given a lot to a lot of everything I respect and admire you. So I was like, yeah, I'll absolutely do it. You get realistic a lot for saying we're the only, right? I mean, I've had other organizations reach out and like, oh, we're doing that. I'm like, well, no, you're not. You're not doing the same thing that we are. Yeah. You're doing good work, but it's not the same thing. You know, I don't know, there's no other organization out there. And I've, I've asked internally, like, what we do? Is there anybody out there that doesn't know? Right? So we knew that we were on to something special, but I didn't know how much money it was going to cost. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so we ran task force two, uh, in June, two people came out for that. And then we ran task force three in August. Task force three was with another special operations unit. Um, a lot of guys look at it as like kind of the pinnacle of, of, you know, special operations career. That was when I really opened my eyes up. I got paired with this dude. Um, He had been in their building for, man, I think three years at that time. I'd heard some stories about these guys and um, got paired with them. And this dude was on a whole other level, like mentally, physically. You want to push harder, go faster. Um, First and last time we ever had mountain biking in our program, Uh, broke both of his ribs, mountain biking, just full send. Got on a horse the next day, and we went all the way from Spanish Lakes Trailhead all the way up to Mirror Lake and back on horses yeah. with two broken ribs, and he never complained once.
0: Yeah, the toughness is on another level. Yeah.
1: I mean, he was just, and then his his path was insane, man. I mean, you know, not to get into too much details, but grew up in a very broken family. Um, one of those guys that joined the military because he didn't have another option, and uh, slept in his car in high school a lot this dude, dude, he can accomplish anything. So that was, you know, now working with another special operations unit with, let's see, three, five, uh, eight people that have gone through the program and mm-hmm. all eight are saying the same thing. Yeah. That was when I really had to take it serious and scale it, you know, I'm like, how am I gonna raise this amount of money? Well, I used to sit outside of Murdoch's on Saturdays, like the Salvation Army, trying to get people to donate. Wow. Um, almost every saturday for like six months i had an ar-15 that was sitting there trying to sell raffle tickets for it um ended up paying for a whole program based off those raffle tickets um going in all over town asking people to play in our golf tournament that helped us get through two task forces um most people like i've had this one guy i still know he has big bozeman guys Like, get the hell out of my office i was like all right I remember that. Wow! Yeah, now he's begging me to come in. Yeah, you know, um, I just it wouldn't quit because it was worth my brother-in-law's life. Yeah. and that was worth eight other people's lives. Right. So the second part of that, the second blessing, is a guy named Ned Schweng. Um, Ned came into my life in 2017. Ned, you know very very uh, successful businessman, um, hell of a family man, hell of an American, just a patriot. You know, straight shooter. You know. Uh, he helped me develop. I remember our first board meeting. He came in and he goes, all right, like eight of us on the board. He goes, I want everybody to go around the table right now and tell me your burnout level 10 being the most. You, four, you, five, three. And then it got to Sean and Sean was like, I'm at a ninth. We've been going hard. I mean, for three years, at this point, two years he looked at me I was like I'm a 9 and he goes don't ever lie to me again he goes you're a 10 I can see it everybody in here can see it we all see it two of you guys are a 9 one's a, nine, one's a 10 the rest of you guys are 3 and 4 so that's the problem and he goes what you guys are doing right now he goes you're fishing in a spring creek for 8 inch trout he goes we need to get that mentality and go to the Missouri and try to catch big browns yeah. and he goes and that's how I'm going to do it you know he helped me believe in myself he showed me there's an outlet i remember uh about three months after that um one of the units we had a guy that got injured and he wasn't bad i mean he just he sprained his um uh, sprained his knee could have been a torn acl right and get one of those guys with a torn acl that's an in, in an operator that's out of the fight for 12 months mm-hmm. you know and those guys there's not many of them right So they're like, hey, you need to, you guys need to learn how to, you guys got to become professional ski instructors in America. I'm like, PSIA, what the hell do they want me to do that for? You know, never even skied. I grew up snowboarding. So I I taught myself how to ski. My third day on skis, I uh, had a tibial plateau fracture, um, sprained my knee, tore my MCL. I had my PSIA the next week. I (laughs) had to pass it to continue Big Sky. We all had to pass it. So I go into there, man. Popped a couple oxy's that the doctor gave me. Um, got through training, one of the most painful things in my entire life. Got my little PSA, you know, gold badge. We had a board meeting that night. And uh, I didn't tell the guys I had a broken I had a tibial plateau fracture. I I'd have never been into that. I'm like, oh, poor Josh, you know, whatever. It's like, no one's going to help me if I even tell them, you know, oh, are you okay? You know, you're all right? It's like, what is that going to do? So I just went through it. So the board meeting that night, very junior board, guys who were very, very passionate about the organization, but really couldn't help us, you know, on the financial scale. So we were bringing up items to vote on for the the the, the budget for the next year. And it's Ned's second board meeting now. And uh, uh, it was like... A $1,500 tent for marketing. Oh, we can't do that. You know, no, that's that's a huge risk. And I'm sitting here, man. I'm, I'm almost bankrupt the same time. Marriage is, you know, I'm in trouble. I'm, I got three jobs. I'm doing real estate. I'm, thank God this guy named Blake let me do construction with him. And I was doing Big Sky Barrier at three times, just trying to pay for my family, you know, my wife and I. Uh, Ned said something that changed my life. And he was just like, how much money? He, he interrupted everybody on the board call and he was like how much money Josh he goes we're talking about $1,500 tent here he goes how much money do you need to commit full time to Big Sky Bravery Mm -hmm. so you can quit that construction job so you can quit doing real estate how much money do you need he goes I'll pay you out of my own pocket and I was in tears I was like I couldn't believe this guy I barely knew said that that he would do that for me I told him and he's like done he never had to pay a dollar of it It gave me the grace, you know, and and then the openness to go out there and chase it. Mm -hmm. And that was when Big Sky Brewery really started because now I focus full time on it. And uh, I knew I could pay my bills off of it, um, off this guy's generosity. And, you know, that was the second biggest blessing. Both of those guys have changed my life and they've impacted the organization more than anyone could ever comprehend. Yeah, Ned Still, he's our chairman of our board now, uh, one of my closest friends. And. Um, you know, that, that's what it took. I think, I don't remember what the initial question was. I rambled on there, but that's what it took to get to this point. Everybody's like, oh, you're the founder mentality. Well, every founder needs a push. You need somebody
0: who's going to help believe Mm -hmm. in you and give you some of the resources because we don't know all the answers for sure, man. I mean, having that, you know, it's not a safety net, but having that lift from somebody, even if it's just a confidence lift, right. From like Ned telling you, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll cover it. You know, you need to focus on this full time that turns into him never having to never having to pay coming out of pocket you right. know for for that because it allowed you to focus wholeheartedly on the mission yeah right and gain and finally gain traction i've always wondered that like um i mean obviously like, i know ned and I, I you know understand his involvement with the organization but i didn't know that story and i'd always wondered how you got from sitting outside murdoch's on saturdays selling raffle tickets to running these tribute dinners and golf tournaments and boxing events and raising millions of dollars. You know, they're like, that's a success story in and of itself, you know, for someone in your shoes as a founder of a nonprofit organization. But would you say the turning point was that like getting somebody like Ned to kind of give you that lift and saying, hey, man, go for it.
1: There was another turning point too, right after Ned. Uh, So uh, March of 2020, this thing called COVID happened. Right. And, um, I mean, what a weird time. So we had that tribute dinner coming up in uh, September of 2020. And, uh, I remember I was like, if we don't do this tribute dinner, cause the year before that 19, we raised $367,000 that night, which funded a lot of task forces for the, 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 the that winter. It was a lifeline for us, it's still a lifeline for us, but it was a lifeline, like critical, like ventilator, not like any COVID side jokes, yeah. just like seriously, it was yeah. a ventilator for us, it kept us alive. So I started selling tables for the tribute dinner and uh, the health department found out about it. So I hired a doctor, I hired nurses to submit a, a health plan or whatever they called it, social distancing plan uh submitted that to the county the guy literally pretty much told me literally told me that um if i do this it's and and it was the plan was approved by doctors and nurses if i do this that they're going to throw me in jail for 30 days and a fifteen thousand dollar fine i was like well if it's it's either or like i'll just pay the 15. can i
0: prepay yeah can i prepay (laughs) you guys
1: can can you spread that out over you know 12 months at five percent or (laughs) something but uh it was no it was both of them 15 and 30 days in jail i considered it man i was like hell people want to show up for this thing you know we need it well we didn't do it board voted it down uh private equity guy in new york city um i was flying to go meet him so the tribute is supposed to be in september this is like november and i met this couple in in chicago before that and they helped us buy that sprinter van that we have so i'm flying to to meet this guy in new york private equity guy and uh, i land in minneapolis I get a message on my phone. Hey kid, I can't meet anymore. He's like, you know, I don't really want to meet anybody in person. And also there's too much uncertainty, you know, the, the too much volatility in the market. I just, so I can't support it right now. I, we were almost out of money at that time. I had uh, two full-time employees and plus me, they all had mortgages. We all had the skill ability. We had all these operators on the waiting list coming in January. Well, I sat there, my hands like, oh, it's like, shit, I can't breathe. You know, I didn't know what to do. Pick up the phone and called this couple out of Chicago, two of the, some of the greatest Americans we ever met. She's like, well, hey, Josh, how are you, sweetheart? And I was like, good, how are you, good? I was like, I gotta ask you for help. And uh, she's like, what do you, hold on, she's like, well, uh, I was like, we just get get him on the phone too. I need both of you. And I told him, I was like, I'm flying to New York and this guy was gonna give us a check. I was like, same thing that Ned told me, I told them. I was like, I need you guys to stroke us. A big six figure check to keep us operational. She goes, I'll send it tomorrow. And that funded all the winter programs the following year. That one person of, you know that I've developed this relationship with, you know, there's so many great Americans out there, but I think those are some of the, the pieces that have got us this point. You know, it's just breathing room to get to the point where you can throw a big gal. I think a lot of people come to the tribute dinner because of two reasons. I think the number one reason is they believe and they trust in me and that I'm doing the right thing with the money and I've developed relationships with donors. I think that's a huge part of it. The second is they believe in the mission and they didn't know that special operations were coming out there. Maybe they're both tied and I'm not trying to be boastful or anything, but when you're talking about large sums of money and support from people, you gotta trust the person. Yeah. You gotta develop a relationship. I can't ask people for hundred thousand dollars and be like, "Oh, hey, my name's Josh. You give me a hundred grand." Like there has to be some rapport and relationships there, and what the need is. So I think that's the reason why we got there. We had a lot of breathing room. We got lucky with certain people, but it was an, it was a relentless desire not to not to quit for them because they weren't quitting for us
0: overseas. Yeah, I know. It's like every time. You know, we I've been at a tribute dinner or another fundraising event, and you hear those types of stories. Um, you know, about Big Sky bravery in particular. It just like I don't know, gives me the chills because it just restores your your faith in America and knowing that even though people like that are gener- generally pretty silent and like you know, the loudest mouths out there are you know sending a different message. But there are so many of those types of people out there that that believe in what you're doing and believe in what this country stands for. Um, you know, I just I love hearing hearing those stories.
1: Well, like when you got involved, right? Uh, we met here in Sidewinders, you you started to come up with ideas for us to raise money, you know, at the store. There's a huge footprint. It's a perfect demographic for where we try to raise money at. Yeah. When you walk in, there's a how big is that American flag? I don't it's know. Huge. It's huge. Yeah. And you see that and you're like, hell yeah, I want to be here. These yeah. are my people. Yeah. Right. Um but looking at it from like that, and, and and just getting to the point where other people help you along the way is, is a critical component for anyone's success. You got to have a lot of people that want to help. Like you yeah. got involved with Big Sky Bravery. I guarantee you and I were the exact same person. I had no idea these guys were going overseas every every four months. Right. I had no idea. Like I mean, you saw like some stuff in Syria or whatever, but like we had no idea. Did we? No. And then we got our eyes open to this, the men that are the same age as you and I. You went to the Citadel, right? Yeah. You went to the Citadel. You um, started business got married starting family and one of the largest employers in town we both got into it for a reason that people don't know what they don't know and i think that's the the tribute to the tribute dinner and some of the other things you just got to educate people and be like, hey man there's guys gals gal still going overseas yeah. right now they hadn't stopped
0: yeah i think i mean you guys have done such a great job of like evolving you know that um that message and, and like and and how you how you communicate the message um And I just see it reaching more and more people every year. So like, I think we, I mean, I appreciate you kind of talking through like the foundation, the origin story and like the the foundational years of, you know, building Big Sky Bravery from nothing into something. And now you guys are kind of like in a different stage, right? I mean, now it's like taking something that exists and scaling it. Mm Um, how many task forces are you doing every year now? So the
1: scaling is in three different answers now. So we'll do 23 this year, 25 next year. So task force for everybody that's the active duty operators that are hand-selected internally from the unit based off who needs it the most. Yeah. Well, we have over 450 people in our alumni network now that have come through in the last eight years. Yeah. So, you, you, you know, what is it? Under, pro, under promise and over deliver? right? Well, we over-promised and under-delivered. We told all those 450 people we're going to take care of them that's a lot of people right so luckily with the generosity of like scaling the financial component of it through revenue we've been able to hire more people to to experience different programs so we we expanded in two different arenas well number one there's always going to be people who need our help in the alumni base right guys who need some reprieve to come out here to montana and uh you know get some fresh air again reconnect back with that volunteer they reconnected with the first time right The other, well, I guess it's multi-tiered. The other part of it is in 2020, we had a task force that was canceled. It wasn't due to COVID. It was just like, they were doing something, who knows. And so I reached out to a really good friend of mine, uh, his name's Micah. And I'm like, hey Micah, um, we got an open task force, you know, units, you know, whatever. And he's like, dude, what about the wives? It's like, my spouse has been with me for, you know, 20 deployments or something, whatever the guy's done. I was like, really? Like a spouse program run it the same way? And he's like, yeah, spouse program. We did that beta test in 2020. It's one of the best things we've ever done. Yeah. So now we have a lot wow, of six spouse for six six. That's kind of a tongue twister. Six spouse, spouse. task forces this year. Yep. Then we also have what we call our family task forces, which we hired this incredible aide named Jenny to run. So if the husband, the operator comes through and then the spouse comes through, they're in the family task force network where we will then um, uh, put it as a lottery pick almost because we have to, you know, with that because they all deserve it. And then uh, they get to bring their entire family out. So we started that program model this year. a good friend of mine. Um, uh, He lost his wife to cancer. Um, when she actually was a spouse on our very first task for spouse task force, um, she ended up battling cancer, beating it and came out to our task force and then ended up, you know, lost her battle, uh, about a year and a half after that. Uh, he's one of my closest friends in, in special operations. And, uh, we were able to bring him and his three kids out for our family fa- FTF one family task force one. Um, we've got seven other families that are coming in the next three months now. That's awesome. So we're scaling it to that point too. So I think, you know, back then we were only focusing on the operator but there's a bigger problem at hand here you know um, being able to partner with with organizations like the honor Foundation has been big for us that are really you know to me the pinnacle of, of transition services for veterans especially in special operations they only focus on special operations so being able to pass that off and be like all right man I'm getting out in 20 years. As my 20 years is up and then be like, here's a professional to take care of that. We're professionals in recreation and we're professionals around that dinner table at night. Right. In my opinion, I don't know if I mean, we're really good at it. Yeah. But then given resources like that. So a skill piece is just, you know, funding creates opportunities. You just mm-hmm. never want to say, Hey, I've got the best, you know, hot wings in town. And then I'm going to go you know, right. start a pizza place and then the
0: pizza sucks, the hot wings go down. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like menu variety, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, like scaling and, and scaling big sky bravery is not just a matter of, of executing more task forces every year. Now you're branching and that, uh, has an exponential impact on the organization, right? There's now exponentially more needs because yeah, you are trying to do more task forces, but you're also doing the alumni, um, you know, the alumni retreats, you're doing the, the family task forces, you're doing the spouse programs. And so now, you know what? How has that shifted the dynamic within the walls of Big Sky Bravery between staff and volunteer corps?
1: That's a really good question. I think it's really shifted the dynamic in the people that we bring out. You know, guys are dying to get their families out here, and that creates more need, right? And creates more uh, opportunities for them. And that's a, a level that we're trying to figure out how to how to scale it in you know quality. The staff. Startup, right? So you look at like a startup tech founder. That's what I consider myself a big sky barrier because. What we're doing in 2018 wasn't going to work for 19, wasn't going to work for 20, right? Hiring people then their job completely changed. Like we have chameleons that work for us. You have to have a, a very high level of autonomy to yeah. to, to survive at Big Sky Bravery. You know, I hire for that job, and I'm like, hey, that job doesn't exist anymore. Now you're doing this, mm-hmm. right? Do you want to do that? And everybody that works for us, we look at four common values: so character, competency, passion, humility. That's what we hire off of. The the staff has shifted in a way where, um, the task forces we're only sustainable based off the volunteer force. So I think this is kind of the question that you're getting at. We can have the biggest donors in the world, we can have the best image in the world, but the volunteers for Big Sky Braver are the ones who are doing God's work. They're the ones who um, are out in the field with these individuals for the duration of the week that present the product and have the positive outcome, right? We were scaling programs, but we weren't scaling volunteers. So we really had to look at it from a, uh, a, a sense of like an assessment selection, making sure that guys and gals are in it for the right reasons, going through a three and a half month process, giving them stuff to do. And then on the outcome of that, being able to trust them. It also covers us on the back end. If something happens on a task force, we can go back to their command and say, Hey, this is the three and a half months that they went through. Yeah. yeah. So I, I mean, I, I feel like we're constantly evolving in the organization, but there's a common ground in big sky bravery that will never, um, sacrifice quality over quantity. Mm-hmm. You know, what's our scalability piece in the task force. It's like, hence when you said, how many are you doing this year? 23. Well, how many are you doing next year? 25, right? What we're really working on now is sustainability in lodging, building a permanent lodge in big sky yeah. that can house, you know, the main lodge will be for task forces. We'll have three out outposts or cabins, and there'll be alumni family task
0: forces and you just miscellaneous. So we have a footprint for them for generations to come. Do you see that same process occurring? So that's kind of like, that's the lodging vertical, which yeah. we, you know, Big Sky Bravery still depends heavily on donors for, for sure. Right. Um, but you're trying to push that to like integrate within the organization. So you actually like own your own property. You go yeah. to the same location for every, every task force. Um, Do you see, see that occurring in other parts of, of your operations in terms of like stuff that you currently rely on donors or on volunteers for like, I don't know, I guess one, one way I would look at that is like,
1: Yeah. You're a lot smarter than I am. You went to a completely different college. You got to (laughs) break that down in layman's terms for me. I think I understand
0: what you're saying, but Like, um, you know, we like all of the task force directors being volunteers, right? Versus, like, do you ever see those becoming more staff positions, or do you think the volunteer dynamic is important to how a Big Sky Bravery Task Force functions? I think the volunteers, the, the dynamic is the most important thing that we should focus on the five years, you
1: know, sustainability. No, on the, the task force directors being staff, because I think you lose authenticity. Like, think about it from this, man. I mean, you want to talk about scaling effectively. Look what you've done here, right? Look at you and Ellie have done. Like, yeah. so getting to that point, the authenticity behind it has to remain in like, you can say, all right, Hey, this guy's Blake, he's a task force director, he's been with us for a while. Hey, Blake, what do you do? Oh yeah. You're always going to be like, oh, and i uh, like, no, let's, let's find out what he really does. Mm-hmm. Look what you do here. One of the largest employers in Montana or Bozeman. So you're taking time off work, taking time away from your wife, taking time away from your son to go out and volunteer for a charity that you care about i think there's an authenticity piece we just have to make sure those are the right. right people leading it
0: yeah yeah for sure um does
1: that answer it? Is that what yeah you're no say? it okay. doesn't
0: i mean i think because i mean i've seen that firsthand but i'm i was just interested to get your perspective on like you know is the fact that these task forces are led and executed by volunteers mm-hmm. um like kind of crucial to uh, accomplishing the mission yeah you know um, which I, I think it, it's a really important dynamic, but it's completely different than a for-profit yeah. industry, right? Like we don't have any volunteers at Blue Collar Restaurant Group. Right. Everybody's a, a paid employee, right? So that's like, on some level, some more than others. Like that's why they're here, you know. Here, here's and the here's a
1: way I can answer that in a more creative way. As a CEO of a for-profit business, as a CEO of a nonprofit, you got to take care of shareholders. Right. Shareholders or donors and volunteers. Mm-hmm. So, we're constantly making sure that they're communicated with, they have the right resources back to invest, that they understand the market opportunity to the balance sheet to whatever, right? Yeah. So, we look at volunteers and donors as shareholders. My job is to make sure they have the right information to make the right decisions. I think it really comes down to one major thing it's who's leading the task force, the task force director. Mm-hmm. You know, if the task force director can see problems before they happen, they can educate the, the volunteers on what to expect, best outcomes. You know, guys who've been in it for a long time. A couple of things that we're doing now that are different compared to last year is we're going to implement, um, we're going to work with mental health counselors here in town and every volunteer is going to have to go see that mental health counselor within three months of leaving their task force, you know, just to make sure that they're okay, that they're able to process the information that they've had and that they're fit to volunteer again. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think it's just bettering steps to make sure it's sustainable, Yeah. but volunteers are always going to be our biggest, um, Opportunity and our biggest problem.
0: Yeah, I get that. I mean, it's very much like, you know, employees in a for profit organization. I mean, that's kind of how, even though like you guys do have a staff at Big Sky Bravery, but you and I have talked about this before the volunteer core kind of is sure. your staff, right? Yep. I mean, they're un- unpaid, but they are there touching the end user, just like a server in a restaurant way more frequently than I yeah. do, right? And so the volunteers are, are there interacting with the recipients at Big Sky Bravery way more often than you do, mm-hmm. you know? And so you have to trust that you have the right people on board and that they're there for the right reasons. Um, how does, I mean, how does Big Sky Bravery continue to scale? I know we talked about, you know, the quantity of task forces every mm-hmm. year and, and branching off into these different types of programs, but do you always see it being, like Bozeman and Big Sky based or do you think that this same type of mission could be accomplished in Texas or in Virginia, you know what I mean? Like there's, there are recreational opportunities Mm -hmm. and if it's purely about recreational decompression, could this become almost like a multi-location? Hey, we've got outlets here for these guys and outlets on the West coast for those guys and stuff like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I get asked that a lot, especially in Jackson, like a lot of people have asked me about Jackson hole. Um, I've had a lot of people reach out about Aspen, Colorado too. Um, it took a long time in a lot of beers and coffee, and breaking bread with people to understand their true values towards the organization. We have partnerships here that um, I don't think can ever be replicated across the United States, people who truly give way more than they take towards the organization. One of the things that we have going in our favor is the footprint of who we give back to. Now, numbers, you know, um, I don't truly understand the numbers, but it's not as, I mean, we give back effectively right now to about 18 to 22% of the total population that we're, our target audience is, which is pretty hefty, right? When you look at it from the the, the scalability piece, our target audience is very different than the regular military or just special operations in general. I think SOCOM's umbrella is like 120,000. I mean, people roast me on this. I'm, I don't know, I just, yeah. you know, but I'm pretty sure it's like 80, maybe it's 80 to a hundred thousand. The target population that we give back to is, uh, I can't give the total number, but it's, way less than that, Yeah. right? So if we're giving back to 18% of that, that target population, we're doing a pretty good job. You know, not every single person that's an operator needs to come out for our program.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not every single wife of an operator needs to come to our program. And that's the, the beauty of what we do. Cause if the stress is off my shoulders, it's off Jeremy's shoulders, there's internal cells inside of inside of the special operations units that we work with that hand select the people that we know need it the most. Yeah. And there are certain time planes where like, let's say unit a, Dude, I can't fill these spots. You know, I can only fill one of the five. Then we go to another unit and be like, hey, can you fill this one? Can you fill that one? Right. We're going to be expanding partnerships, but we're meeting the demand that they're putting forward every single year mm-hmm. because not every single person inside their organization needs it. So that yeah. helps us with the quality piece. Yeah. To me, it's the back end of how to really answer this and the challenge that we face is the 450 alumni. Yeah. What are we doing that's effective for them?
0: Yeah. And I think that that does answer the question in, t- in terms of like the continued evolution of big sky bravery. It's, you know, it's only natural. You want to improve at what you're doing. You want to, whether it's, you know, serve more people or serve more effectively mm-hmm. year after year. Right. Talk about taking care of your shareholders and stuff. I mean, you're kind of, uh, pointing this in the direction of just going like staying narrow and deep rather mm-hmm. than, wide and shallow yeah. right so trying to double down on on alumni double down on their families and spouses and mm-hmm. kids and making sure that you're really hitting that as deeply and as as impactful as mm-hmm. possible p- for those individuals that you're serving rather than saying hey let's let's replicate the same experience in Jackson Hole and in Aspen and right
1: yeah and i think one of the ways that we can help with that is you know the nonprofit mentality is like you know everything that you do is perfection. You're saving the world, right? To me, it's looking at what you did last year. doesn't count unless you're trying to improve it for next year. Mm -hmm. So we look at data points every single year. Uh, luckily we have this amazing resource called FMG leading where they're, you know, the leaders in consulting, um, and then understanding how data and metrics are established to improve, you know, corporate culture, to leadership opportunities, to whatever. So they they've really invested time in us. Well, we have in the next uh, month and a half, we have um, every unit that we work with. They're sitting out their lead psych, and we're running a task force for them, and they're going to tell us what our true benefits of are to the operators, to the families, you know, what volunteers should be looking at, and whatever. And we're going to look at those data points and try to improve upon for next year. Yeah. So I would rather have less people come through on the scalability piece. Like if a billionaire like Jeff Bezos, like, Hey, I'll give you a billion dollars if you can bring in 10,000 people and right. sure we'll keep your billion. You know, yeah. we can't do that, but we can scale it to where it's an effective solution rather than, you know, mass multiply and say, Hey, this guy had an okay time.
0: I like that. And I like that you guys are involving the psychs because, you know, they're gonna, you already have, have really good metrics and, you know, and quantitative Uh, Data on what the impact is for for most of these recipients, but they're going to be able to tell you, hey, these are the things that really matter. Yeah. Right. And like this is and this is how it translates into, you know, a better family dynamic or, you know, a better relationship with their spouse or or maybe getting back on the horse and being really motivated for their next appointment or whatever it is, like whatever those goals are for the for the organizations, they're probably going to know that best. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good um, you know, strategy, uh, to accomplish that for sure. Um, one thing I know that we've been, we've been talking about within, you know, the volunteer group is, and you touched on this is the evolution of the volunteer selection process. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that and then, you know, how it's been going so far how you think it's going to impact volunteer selection moving forward, and what the overall like volunteer needs are for the organization?
1: Yeah, that, that's a that's a tough question to answer. Um, were you on DP's task force when he came in?
0: As a recipient? No. Yeah. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I well, met this, him
0: right after that.
1: Yeah, I mean the dude is a rock star. Yeah. Um, when I I, I think it's like so to get down to the base of it, like if I'm stressed about something in business. I'm not going to go talk to somebody who's in business school, right? I'm not going to. I'm not going to really listen to that person. Yeah. I'm not going to give attention to them.
0: They don't have whoever. the credibility. They
1: don't have the credibility. Yeah. If I want to talk about this, I'm going to come in to you and I'm like, hey, Blaine, like we had a cup of coffee like three months ago. I'm like, hey, man, this is what I'm rolling out. This is what you're rolling out. This is my struggles. This is you know. And I'm, I'm I feel safe now because I know I'm not wasting my time. It's not falling on deaf ears. So when this guy came through, it was like 2018. He had just left as uh, the unit sergeant major, the unit he was, he was working for at the time. I think he spent 32 years in special operations. I mean, it's insane, right? The, 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 the knowledge.
0: He's is unreal. Unbelievable. Yeah. He's become such a great friend and yeah. mentor.
1: He's the Jamie Diamond of, of special operations. Yeah. He understands everything. Yeah. So he came to the task force. He called me. He's like, hey, man, I want to move out here. and I want to be a part of this. Introduced him to a realtor moved out here, been one of our best volunteers since then. Well, the opportunity for volunteers was getting someone with that skill set, that knowledge base and the understanding he has for people, especially in assessment selection yeah. to be the lead our, our volunteer front. We wouldn't be able to scale or we I I wouldn't feel nearly as comfortable about Big Cyber if he wasn't a part of it. Then we looked at our task force directors, you know, to, to be on that board. So the question I think that you asked was, um, Was it more task force director based, like leadership? How do we scale leadership? What do
0: we look for in leadership? I think like the fact that you brought up DP and and the process, which we don't need to like dive super deep into, but basically just understanding that the process has gotten more strenuous. It's gotten more detailed. You know, you're basically trying to make sure that someone who applies to be a volunteer is in it for the right reasons. Right. And, and even though, you know, you have scaling goals and you want to operate more task forces and you know, that depends on more volunteers, you know, this is kind of counterintuitive, Mm -hmm. right? Like you would think, well, we just want to get as many volunteers in the building as possible. You're making, you're like tightening the filter for volunteers. So like, why is that? And how do you see that affecting the organization
1: well, yeah I mean it's like one of the operators told me so I'd rather go to war with five um, studs and 100 dipshits right yeah. um, to me the first part of becoming a volunteer for Big Sky Bravery is the person who's giving you the information has to articulate it in the right setting mm-hmm. if they don't like hey man it's a pretty cool organization they give back special operations I know you didn't serve and, you know we get to go ski and snowmobile and like do all these other things in summer Oh, sounds badass man Cool. Then you get to assessment selection and then we give them all these, you know, tedious, you know, like, what the hell do I have to do this for? They're not going to want to do it. They're not all in. So you got to first step. It starts with articulating the importance of the mission, being vulnerable, sharing experiences of what you got out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the second piece of that is like, kind of what I said earlier is if something really hits the fan, we got to make sure that we're dotting our I's and crossing our T's back to command. So this is what we do to put in that. The importance of what we're doing for the volunteer work is they have to understand and they have to be humble enough to listen to top volunteers such as yourself to what their actual impact is towards these these individuals that yeah. we You know, how am I going to better myself? I think the true thing of it is like I'll sit around the guys early on. And my, my biggest thing that I would look for, i like, how's your marriage? Oh, it's great. I'm like, all oh, right, you're the liar. Right? Total liar. There's no marriage that is great all the time. Yeah. Right? We all struggle. How's your job? Oh, it's perfect. All right. You're a liar too. It's like, no, how's your marriage? Man, I'm, I'm, I'm all right now. You know, I'm struggling a little bit with this, whatever. Like, I always tell volunteers, I said, don't ever come to a task force and, you know, think that you're 100% ready. Yeah. If you're 90%, then that's the kind of people that we're looking for because everybody's got family, financial, health reasons, whatever that they're struggling with. But if you bring those to the table in an authentic way, with having, going to war with five guys instead of a hundred, we can have two volunteers with five recipients and they'll still have the same outcome. They just have to want to be there. They got to be humble enough to listen. And then they have to have that character, competency, passion, humility piece of them that, that that says, I'm going to step away from my wife and my kids and my career for one week and give it back to these individuals. I've never met and I didn't know existed.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the listening piece is huge, you know, I mean, um, the first task force i did with you guys i mean it was an intimidating experience because i'd never really interacted with uh with those types of men before i was young too like i was 27 i think on my mm-hmm. first task force um you know and, and going back to like what you mentioned earlier like i didn't know that i had the credibility to have those types of conversations with with you know the, with the recipients um that's a that's a tough thing to balance where you're like you know you want to be productive you want to be a good part of the team but you know i i didn't i I was married but i didn't have kids at the time Mm -hmm. you know i had business stuff that i guess you know was valuable to some to some people to talk about but you know didn't have kids and and hadn't gone through a lot of the life experiences um that so many of these guys have um and i'm you know getting more of that getting more experience getting more comfortable and have more in common with with most of the recipients now, but that was a challenging thing to learn to balance, I guess. But listening is always... Uh, it's always a good strategy.
1: That's what we're here for. I mean, yeah. dude, I didn't have a clue what we were doing on that task force either. I was just like, hey, man, if we can make them smile and laugh and then they open up in conversation, you know, it was it was listening to other people's advice and being like, hey, you know, we should do this, do that. And like, do we have it figured out? Now, I think we got a pretty damn good firm understanding on it. But yeah. We can always do better, right? I had no idea what I was doing back then either, so don't feel too bad about it. <laughs> I mean, I'm the one who dislocated my shoulder in the back country <laughs> and you had to put it back in. So, yeah.
0: no, I, I don't feel bad about it. I just, it was, uh, it was just an eye-opening experience for me, you know, and and um, I've have said this to a lot of people that I talk about with, you know, that are asking about my experience with sure. Big Sky Bravery. That like when you first talked to me about being part of a task force, I was really excited to do it, mainly just because like, you know, I had I had wanted to go into the military and didn't get that opportunity for, uh, so, you know, reasons that we could. Talk about later, but um, I never felt I'd never found that one like avenue to be able to like contribute or yeah. give back and and you know, whatever you whatever you want to say, say thank you or you know, like I said, give back to people in that that are, that are doing so much for our lives here as Americans, yeah. you know. And so initially, I thought about it that way like, hey, this is going to be you know kind of transactional kind of like hey thank you for your service you you know you've given so much let me give back my time but even on that that first task force um seeing how collaborative it was and seeing how much like it was mutually beneficial for everybody involved um really changed my whole perspective on what big sky bravery is about and the impact that that the organization makes for uh for both sides of it you know the recipient and the volunteer i mean the the volunteer corps here in bozeman have become really a lot of my best friends mm-hmm. you know and the people who i know i can depend on we have that in common we have a lot of common values like shared values and stuff so it's really an amazing uh operation amazing organization and the impact is is really twofold um I know you, you interact with a lot of volunteers, but I I hope you know that, that it's, uh, it's impactful for, for us as much as it is for the recipients.
1: I think, I think that's the best task force and the best volunteers is the volunteers get just as much out of the
0: recipients. That means you're all in. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you, when you walk away from it with that experience, it, it means that really the mission of big sky bravery, you know, forming that brotherhood it, that can't happen if it's purely transactional. For it's sure. just like, hey, I'm here to, you know, to do what you ask or whatever. That doesn't happen. Like you have to have, you have to go through some shared experiences. You have to, you know, have tough conversations. Um, it's a give and take between everybody that's there living in the house together. You know.
1: Well, let me ask you a question because this kind of gets brought up a lot for me. Is you said you know the, some of the volunteer forces become your best friends, right? Well, the guys that we give back to their teams are best friend, right? Mm-hmm. But then at some point, Hey man, here's my badge. I'm out. That team's going to go on. It's not your team anymore. Yeah. Right. And then they're going to continue that tribe. And another person's going to come in here. Well, that's the, probably the most, one of the most beneficial things for big sky bravery is yeah, we have best friends, volunteer force and everything else, but it's showing these guys what's the sustainability, just how, what, how, how are your friendships back home sustainable? Mm-hmm. The way you can do that is interact with civilians, you know, they, at least one guy said, it's really hard for me to become friends with civilians. Cause my entire relationship is built off a of lie. Cause I can't tell them what I do.
0: Yeah.
1: Like, you don't have to tell them what you do. Just tell them my, like, Hey, my name's this, you know what I mean? And, in getting that, like you feel comfortable talking to, to that person because of a shared life experience. Well, it's being the first, the first step to that is like, raising your hand, and say, I'd like to become a volunteer. Like we can sniff out a lack
0: of authenticity in a yeah. split second. Yeah.
1: That's what makes it great. It's like people are genuinely authentic, want to be there, and are selfless servants.
0: Yeah, I know we talk about that w- within volunteer training, and you know, as as a task force director, I know I, I touch on this before every task force with the other volunteers on my program. That it all starts with that foundation of trust, mm-hmm. right? And what Big Sky Bravery offers is that the recipients can come in. and even though that, you know, a lot of them still come in, you know, with their guard up a little bit, at least they know that, especially after many years of, of you guys operating these, these task forces and they've heard from other guys in their unit or people they've worked with yeah, big sky bravery is, you know, it's a legit Mm -hmm. organization. They're great, the great volunteers. So as soon as we meet them at the airport, generally, you know, they know that the volunteers are there for the right Mm -hmm. reasons and that like right away, kind of sets the foundation for the week. It sets the foundation for us to have, you know, meaningful conversations or sure. be able to let your guard down and be vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I one of the coolest things to me is like when I get to go and travel and we go do like command visits or something like that. And you walk into these compounds where, you know, I mean you're men amongst giants and you look around and dudes are wearing big sky bravery hats yeah. or t shirts. <laughs> yeah. And there's so many of them, you know, or you're just walking, you're going from one meeting to the other. And like during that meeting, you see a bunch of guys, you know, and they're like, they come give you a hug. or like, hey, man, I'm so-and-so. My, my buddy on my team so went through cool. your program and you just like, it reaffirms your faith and, you know, what you're trying to do. Because a lot of people look at nonprofit work and it's like, oh, you know, that I think people have a different reality of it. like oh it's super sexy or whatever you're giving back you know and like people look at me like oh what you got him having the time of his life you know he gets to go ski at these places you know whatever it's not what it's it's one of the worst things i've ever been involved with because you're dealing with a broken community it's the end of the day that's what it is you're dealing with men and women who are hurting Mm -hmm. they're internally selected to come out they're not coming out because they're top performers they're. All, I mean, they are top performers, but they're coming out because they need a reset and they're hurting. Yeah. So you're constantly sur- surrounding yourself with broken people. Just can't become broken in that process, is which is I've, I've battled with for the last eight years. Yeah. It's like you know how do you, you you know you get through these different things and these barriers. Well, it's same thing for everybody. But if you often if you're you authentically I if it says any right. Well, this might be a three forks word. Um, <laughs> if you genuinely want to be able to go with genuine. You're going to have a great outcome from the volunteer side of it, and the recipient's going to see that. Mm-hmm. But the recipient's got to be want to be there too.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that, that you're kind of relying on the on their the unit's leadership to make sure yeah. that they're making the right selections too about getting getting people out there. But I think that's that's a really cool impact that that you're making, and that you've actually got you know full on advocacy from the operators like you said when you're going to these command visits and seeing them wear the merch and and represent the brand i mean that's that's kind of like best case scenario four years ago so i get
1: done doing a brief and um looking at there's like 60 70 people in this brief dude and they're all killers man like you've seen them i mean just grown-ass men they're the highest caliber of their job and you're giving a brief to them. Well, I remember uh, their, their, one of their senior leaders came up to me right after that. I was a major at the time. Pulled me aside and said, Hey, man, I appreciate this brief. You know, like, Yeah, call me buddy Eliza. Hey, appreciate this brief, buddy. Yeah, right, Yeah, you know, buddy. <laughs> I didn't ever say buddy back to him. <laughs> and the last thing he said to me I always resonates with me when this is four years ago. He goes, Josh, I'm going to tell you something. And I said, Sir. And he goes, Don't fuck this up. He goes, You're the only resource that we have, you're all that we've got. Shook my hand, gave me a coin, walked away. And for that guy to say that, you're all that we got. I want the volunteers to understand that too. So it's up yeah. to us to articulate that. It's up to me to articulate that back to the donor base. Now there's, you know, like I always say to the people that give money to us, and I truly believe this, because I look across this valley, man. Like some of these nonprofits that give back to disadvantaged youth and like troubled kids and like making sure people have food. I mean, that. But it touches my heart. I got two small kids, but I always tell everybody, give me a check, you know, make sure their intentions are in the right way. Figure out how they want to be communicated with. All that's kind of the basics. But I look at them and I say, hey, with, there's so many great organizations out there. I really appreciate you making Big Cyber a priority. Yeah, because you earn that money. I mean, Blaine, you earned it, right? You give it to us, you earn that. You don't have to. And that's what's great about America. It's a very philanthropic country, yeah. right? I mean, billions and billions and billions of dollars a year allocated to nonprofits, you know, whether some of them are doing good work or bad work, it's not up for me to decide. I know that what I can control is what we do internally. And it's a pretty selfless place we live.
0: I think going back to like, you made a comment about, you know, maybe people's misconceptions about what nonprofit work is all about. I think a lot of people end up just looking at those dollar signs and saying, oh yeah, they raised X number of dollars, right. Comparing one organization to the next, even if they're in completely different, you know, effort sectors, you know, like big sky, bravery, serving active duty soft versus, you know, the Gallatin Valley land trust or something, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. I think oftentimes it just gets boiled down. Well, how much money do they raise? you know, well, that's not, I mean, the money is just the vehicle for how Big Sky Bravery makes an impact. And I'm super proud to be part of it. I'm super proud of you and for being able to hear this story from, you know, from zero to one and now to what it's grown into and the future that Big Sky Bravery has. Um, You know, thank you for making it a reality because there's been a lot of people that have really benefited from it.
1: I appreciate that, man. I mean, you've been a huge part of it. A lot of people in the county, you know, the city of Bozeman have been a huge part of it. I mean, at the end of the day, like what you said, nonprofit's a business at the end of the day. Yep. It's the only business model, though, where 70% of your cash is just getting blown in the for-profit or spent towards the recipients, at least 70%. That's like kind of the threshold. Yep. So you start over every single year. Yeah. You know? But it's a business at the end of the day. It's who's driving that business. You have to, and like another, I think another misconception for nonprofits, if people are like listening to this and they're, they're trying to get their nonprofit to the next level. The people that you're hiring have a life, they have a mortgage, right? They got, they might have kids. They need a vacation for a reset. They need to be able to pay their bills. They need to be able to stash money Well, You got to pay people a a good salary if you want the right people. So I think that's kind of the misconception about nonprofit work too. It's like, oh, I'm a nonprofit. I'm going to take a huge pay cut. Well, yeah, we're not going to be up to industry average of what Goldman Sachs pays an analyst, but damn, if we don't have the right people that support us that believe you need the right person to do a job. And that's all about scalability
0: for sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, that employee experience, the volunteer experience, like making sure that, you know, not only are we getting people interested because they love the mission, but they actually love the nuts and bolts of executing day to day. Right. And that starts with you. It starts with Jeremy and Dave and everybody in your office and guys like DP and Shane that are leading the volunteer Corps. Um, and you know, and our newest volunteers too, and making sure that, you know, they're really enjoying the experience and, Like you said, sometimes, especially with this new volunteer selection process, like, you know, reading a book and writing essays and stuff like that's not for everybody Mm -hmm. and that's okay. But the ones who do buy into it, I mean, I've sat in these boards and heard their feedback. Mm -hmm. They, they love it, you know? And that's a, to me, it's like, okay, that's a check mark that we've, we've got the right person in the room.
1: Well, I mean, one of the things I've always been like the most proud of you for is like, you're one of the most humble guys I've ever met. Um, Sidewinders, perfect example. Like people come up to me and I'm like, oh man, I'm so proud of you for Big Sky Bravery. You know, well done, thank you. Like dude, there's hundreds of people around me. I just had the idea, you know? And I'm glad I did because it saved my brother-in-law's life. Yeah, You know, it saved a lot of other people's lives but there's so many other people. Sidewinders, perfect example. Look how much staff you retained over COVID. Like I still see the same faces. I One thing I love about going to Sidewinders, say, hey Riley, what's up bro? Avery, how you doing? Jackie, every—I mean, dude, Ty, Trey—I've known those people for six years because I've drank, you know, so many Coors Lights sitting at the <laughs> bar and ate more hot wings than anybody in the county. But yeah. you, it all starts with humility and taking care of the right people. Like yeah. how you retain staff over that is still one of the most impressive things I've ever seen. How you treat people—you can't go. I get those hot wings; they get delivered to my table. You might not know that person is who delivered it, but they're there for the right reasons. Everybody wants to work there, so humbleness man and there's so many other people that have supported you know for me to even get to this point where i can talk about it well I'm i can
0: tell you that, that you know at least from my perspective and i'm sure this is true for so many other volunteers uh and recipients that have been part of part of the organization uh at one time or another that type of you know what you see at winners what you see in our company is hugely impacted by my experience at the big sky bravery really i mean i talk about things you know with our leadership team with new employees, there's, there's elements that I've taken from my conversations and interactions with recipients on task forces that are like literally in our employee handbook. They're literally in our training documents and, and our leadership development stuff. I mean, um, I had a conversation with a a recipient on one of my first task forces and he told me about a a post-it note that he keeps on his computer screen because he had learned from bad leadership over his career that he had three leadership characteristics that he felt like were crucial to, you know, kind of the foundation of any good leader, humble, credible, and approachable. And that's like, it's something we talk about in in this company every day. And and of course that, you know, it trickles down or or connects with every employee in our organization at at one point level or another you know and so um it goes both ways i guess is what i'm saying you know that's amazing we, uh, people like myself and and the other volunteers get out like i said earlier just as much out of this as, as the recipients do so it's uh it's pretty awesome what what you guys have created and you know just looking forward to the future with it too i appreciate you man uh
1: Enjoyed the conversation today. Always yeah. nice just talking to somebody that I truly care about and respect and appreciate. Thanks, so
0: Same to you. Thanks, brother. Yeah. Appreciate it, dude.
1: Yeah, appreciate you. Love you. Yeah, love you. All.
0: Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Service First Podcast. Join us on our mission to spread the word and inspire others to lead with a Service First mindset by sharing this episode with your friends and colleagues. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Service First Podcast on your favorite platform. We can't wait to connect with you and continue this important conversation about service, community, and leadership.